Let's pray. Father, thank you for such kind words, even in the song that we have just sung. Jesus says, if I'm lost, that I know that I can come to him because he has come to us on the cross. Thank you for that reality. There is salvation in no other name but the name Jesus Christ. Father, this is your word. You have given it not just for us to have, but so that our lives may be changed. There are those who need saving. Save, Lord. There are those who are struggling with their sanctification, struggling with theology. Lord, bring conviction and assurance. This is your word. So move by it in every heart that you may magnify and glorify yourself. For your name I pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to James 1, please. James chapter 1. Six weeks ago, we ventured out on a series within a series. Uh, We started looking at verse 13 to verse 18 as a pericope, as a section within this chapter. So this morning, we return one last time, (laughs) hopefully, if I get to it since uh, I may not, but hopefully this is the last time we are in this section. And we've seen that James gives us a fourfold response to an accusation made in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tried or in a trial, I am being tempted by God, end quote. That is the claim that James is responding to. The entire section from verse 13 through to 18 is a response to the claim. That somehow God is involved in tempting us to do evil when we are in a trial. And he says, by no means. Let me show you how. So I gave you a fourfold response and this is the test. We'll see how many of you know it by now. If you haven't been here, you're excused. If you've been here for the last six weeks, I've repeated for five of those weeks what the outline is. So I'm just going to call on one person to give us the outline. See, everybody's just looking down. Please don't call on me. So here are the four responses. You can help me out. What was the first one? The divine essence of God. Thank you. Number two, the innate nature of God. I'm glad you know it. Number three was the immutable character of God. Hey, thank you, Auntie Dots. The last one is the divine work of God. That is what we're looking at this morning. I'm really impressed that you know that. Now as we continue, we will see in verse 18 that there are three parts to this verse. I'm just going to give you the synopsis, then we'll get into the sermon. There is the main clause in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. Then you have a subordinate clause, by the word of truth, and then a purpose clause, so that we, or that we should be, a kind of first fruits of his uh, creatures. That is the structure of the verse. So it's very easy to understand. Main verb, main clause, and then a subordinate clause, and a qualifying uh, purpose clause. And all of it just looks at this one thing. God's divine work in salvation. That's all it deals with. So I have one point, because James has one point. It's that God is the divine savior of those whom he saves. Does that make sense? That's all you need to know. That's what the sermon is about. God's divine work in salvation. Now there are at least one significant element that he highlights. And it is this. That the origin of God's divine work is his will. That is what we will look at. The means of his divine work is his word, and the purpose for his divine work is the first fruits. And we will look at those various aspects of this passage. You could say that James looks at the divine cause and effect, the effective means which results in the fulfillment of God's divine purpose. 
They all refer to the same event, that is salvation. So let's give attention to the origin of God's divine work. For those of you who have not been here, I'm just going to fill in a little bit of the background to verse 18 so we are all on the same page. At this stage, James has adequately proved that God is not like man, that God cannot in any way be blamed for temptation towards evil, for sin. He cannot be blamed at all. Look at verse 14. I'm going to read 13 through to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted or tried that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And, just in case you missed that, he himself tempts no one. His first defense is, well, look at the nature of God. He's not able to tempt anybody towards evil because of who he is. He's not tempted by evil. And in contrast to that, verse 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own want, his own will. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth or brings forth death. God is not like man. Man is tempted because he's got an internal problem. His, his desire is corrupt. His will is corrupt. But God is not like that. So God cannot be tempted by sin towards evil in any way. If we are left by ourselves, we'll end up in eternal separation from God. And that is the death that he speaks about in verse 15. Brings about death. Everyone's desire leads them away from God. But God's desire, on the other hand, leads towards life. So the first line in verse 18 that James deals with here is the contrast to what we've seen in verse 14 and 15. Before I get there, let me just fill in the last three verses. Then James goes on in verse 16 and 17 to say, do not be deceived. Don't follow the lie. Don't fall for the lie. Do not wander away from the truth. Why? Because of verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Remember how I explained this? That there's an adjective for every good gift and there's an adjective for every perfect gift. James has two things in mind that come down together at the same point in time. So the, every good gift is the ongoing nature of giving good things to his people. And that perfect gift is that complete gift that he gives. So both come down at the same time of salvation. They come from God. And so he says, the father of lights gives us goodness. Good gifts and a complete and perfect gift when he gives it, which relates to salvation. And then he adds this clause, Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does that relate to? God's unchanging nature. James uses theology to combat heresy. He says, don't, don't believe the lie, don't be deceived. But here's the truth about God. Here's the truth about man. And this is the essence of God. He's unchanging in all his ways. Now lastly, James' final response to this lie that God tempts us to evil is look at the work of God. In this first line of his own will, he brought us forth. We see that James emphasizes the will of God. And we know this to be true because in the original Greek, he places the word will right up in front of the verse. That's for emphasis sake. And he's saying that this will is emphatic. So it, it all has to do with this will. Whatever God does after this comes from this desire or this will. And it can be translated, having made his decision, he brought us forth. Or as uh, my Greek prof said, upon deciding, I like that translation, meaning that he's already made up his mind. And upon that decision, he brought us forth. So God acts freely, purposely, and graciously in 
producing salvation. And we will look at what that means in a moment's time. The fact that this verb is emphatic, it's, it's placed in the beginning of the verse, means that it is prominent. It is the operator through which whatever God does in salvation comes to be. What it shows is that God's will is the origin of new birth. Think about that. God's desire, God's will, is the center, the kernel, from which every person is saved. It is His will that causes spiritual life. Now, in some dictionaries or lexicons, it has been incorrectly uh, presented to mean it is a holy divine will. They're saying that that word, this will or desire, means holy or divine will. However, this word can be used in a variety of different ways. It can be used synonymously, synonymous, synonymously <laughs> with desire, will, intention for both humans and God alike. For instance, 1 Timothy 6, 9, you don't have to turn to it. I'll, I'll ask you to turn to the passage that we have to turn to. Paul here speaks of saints who desire to be rich. It's that word. That ongoing internal human desire. In 2 Corinthians 1.15, he says, I wanted to, to come to you. A longing, a deep, strong human desire. I really, honestly wanted to come to you. But in Philippians 1.12, it really means want. The same can be found in Titus 3.8. I want or need or long for you. In both cases, he says, I want or long or desire you to insist on these things in Titus 3.8. And uh, I really wanted in Philippians 1.12 to see you or to come to you. But it can be used of God. For instance, when Jesus says, Father, if it is your will, your desire, let this cup pass from me. So the word in itself does not necessarily mean divine desire, but it depends on how it's been used. And in this case, it does mean God's divine will. I mention these because this is often used to magnify, and it's snatched out of context, it is used to magnify just the divine will of God, saying that it only means divine will, but it's used in a variety of ways. Now, one significant way is found in James uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to this. Look at the ships also. Speaking about man's inability to tame his tongue, now using an illustration. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the, what is that word? Will. That's the same word. The will of the pilot directs. That is the same sense in which James uses this word. It is a directive will. A, a predetermined decision that has an outcome. The, any one of you that goes onto a ship uh, yeah, called a, a pilot, which we know is a captain, or a pilot like in a plane, if the guy doesn't know where he's going, you probably don't want to get on that plane or boat, right? He's got to know the destination, and he's got to know how to move that boat to get to that destination. Because if a guy drives a car like a friend of mine, who doesn't know what is left or right, and just turns, you probably want to get out of the car. Some of you know him. This is intentional. This is purposeful. And that's the point that James has here in 1.18. It's an intentional, decisive act of God. There is implicit in, in this word a determination to perform the thing that is desired. Now, with God, it is completely different than with man. The same word can be used of men. For instance, some of you desired this week to read that book, Respectable Sins, right? You really desire to finish chapter 4, 5, and 6, just to be ahead of time, ahead of a lot of smiles. But you just didn't accomplish that. Not so with God. Whatever He desires, He will accomplish. He will fulfill. If he determined to do it, he will bring it to pass. 
That's the reality of what James is talking about. And the weight of this will become evident in just a moment's time. It shows that God freely, willingly gave. He chose to give life. It is that independent, free, volitional, intentional, directed act of God. Uninfluenced by anyone or anything. This is more than a mere desire. This is God acting by himself for himself. In fact, that is implicit in the form of this uh, verb. That God is acting with self-interest and self-participation. It is God alone who acts in bringing life forth. This is not in accordance with human will. This is by divine will alone. James says, he brought us forth. This means that God does not cast his net just wildly. There's a determined, decretive, decisive act to bring people forth. Now, this act of bringing people forth is limited to the us in this context. He brings us forth by the word of truth. And I'll get back to how this us is used later on. Now one noteworthy aspect which can be seen in English is this emphatic way in which James tries to convey this. Of his own will speaks of the Father's unprovoked free will to move and save people. God does it by himself for himself. He chose to give life. He was not solicited to do it. He was not forced to do it. He's not responding to anyone. He's choosing to act in this way. And so it is done. This speaks of the sovereign freedom of God's own will with regards to salvation. What it shows that the origin of new life is not the will of man, but the will of what? God. So I say who? It shows where salvation begins. Not with man, nor the will of man, not even through association. You are not saved because your parents are saved. But by means of God's determined will, which he alone accomplishes. Now what James does here is pretty interesting. He says of his own will, so the origin is his will. But notice what he says after that. He brought us forth. There's an interesting contrast that's taking place here, and you might have picked it up. Look at the end of verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, what is that word there? Brings forth what? Death. That is the same word being used there. What James is pointing out is that man always acts consistently with his nature. And that consistent act of being sinful always will end up in what? Eternal damnation, separation from God, which is death that he's talking about here. So man always acts consistently with who he is. But now he contrasts man's actions with God and he says, God, by his own will, brings us forth. God always acts consistently with his own will. Whereas man brings forth death, God brings forth what? Life. You can almost see Genesis chapter 3 in here. Man fell. Romans chapter 5 from verse 12 says, because of Adam's sin, we are all what? In sin. And we all die. This is why we need supernatural intervention. This is why we need a will that is outside our will. Because our will will lead to death. Our will always leads to sin. But God, he does not have sin in his heart. And he can never sin. So James connects. Listen, you have to understand, you will always end up in sin. But God, if he's like you, if he tempts you to evil, he can never do what he's doing here in saving sinners to salvation. Or bringing sinners to salvation. Man is controlled by his will, but God controls his will. 
He decides who gets saved. What we see in this text as a whole is the utter inability of man to reach out to God and the utter abundant grace of God to reach out to man. James says, he brought us forth. What a tremendous message of hope to these saints. In the quagmire and the morass of sin, in the overwhelming, soul-crushing weight of sin, God says, I give life. The emphasis, again, is on the freedom of God to bring life into existence. This is new creation language. Pay attention to that. And the reason I say that is because the way that James decides to use this word brings us forth. In verse 15, he uses it, and 14 and 15, he uses it in the process of childbearing. I'm going to use uh, uh, an analogy in a moment's time to help us understand this. But this word, when he says brings us forth, this verbal thought that he uses here, it is not the process of carrying, the process of being pregnant, not even the delivery. It is the result of that. I don't know if you understood what I said. So what James is after is not that God carries us to term or, or, or conceived us in some way, but that God just suddenly brings us into existence to life at some point in time. The reason I say that is because if you look at verse 15, he explains the feminine process of pregnancy. Let's look at it. Then when desire has conceived, you know, conception, that is that word, gives birth to sin. So conception results in the growth of sin. Then he goes on. When it is fully grown, so it's still in the womb, it's, in, it's still in the womb, when it has fully grown, and now we're thinking of the gestation process, the, the pregnancy process. After that period, what happens? It brings forth death. So the result of the pregnancy conception and the carrying forth the, the, the gestation period, the net result of that, the outcome of that is what? Death. The child born from wrong desire is death. The thing that exists out of your evil conception in your heart is death. So James says, I'm not mentioning any of the processes that regard, with regards to how a person gets pregnant. Conception, carries to full term, and then birth. No, I'm only using the end. There's only one thing in God, uh, in God's plan to bring people to salvation. There is no real conception. There is no caring to term. There is only a giving of life. So let me explain it this way. Once a pregnancy is over, the child is born, he's breathed his first breath, and we say the child was born at 2 o'clock. We don't think pregnancy anymore, right? She's not caring anymore. The child is alive. Uh, one uh, lexicon says implicit in this is a safe delivery. You are no longer delivering the delivery is done. For instance, when uh, Chanel brought to life little Wayne, right? The pregnancy is over. She gave birth, and we said she gave birth to little Wayne at, what is it, 2 a.m.? I don't know what time it was. Well, so let's say 2 a.m. She's now no longer pregnant, and the child is no, no longer in the womb, but the for, uh, I'm going to use the word thing, but you know what I mean. But the thing born of the woman is what is in view. The pregnancy is over. The child is now on its own oxygen, independent of the mom until it needs food. But it is now independent. It is that child that James is after. Not the process. He says, I'm cutting out the process. Just think of the thing born. That is what is in view. The child born, for those of you who are offended by thing. James makes a distinction between the process, starting at conception, ending up in the birthing process. He says, 
I'm not interested in that. I'm going to show you one thing that God does. He gives life miraculously. Because to have this word used of humans is impossible. It doesn't exist. You need the process to be born. And he says, you know with God? Here's what happens. He gives life instantaneously. The outcome is in view. This is an impossible act where God decides to bring forth children without the processes of bringing forth children. James willingly cuts out everything that he just mentioned in verse 15 to say that God produces the outcome. God produces a child without the processes of a child. But there's a little bit more weight to that than this. He could have used any other word. He could have used the the word that John uses so often with regards to being born from above or born by God. And no, one uh, theologian is wrong. God does not here take on the feminine act. No, he does not. Because the word does not mean that it is feminine. The word here means that God miraculously as a masculine produces life. James is showing the miraculous nature of the new birth. Unlike the normal processes of pregnancy, which is cumulative, the one leads to the other and the other leads to the other, God instantaneously, by his own will, acts and brings forth to life dead beings. The only way that God can give life to a certain thing is if they are what? Dead. James shows just by using this word, That God is absolutely sovereign in bringing life to dead beings. It is an instantaneous, miraculously event where birth is granted to dead bones. Now I want you to think about the weight of this reality. If God is giving life, what does it mean before that point? You are dead. That's the point that is being highlighted. He brought us forth by implication out of death. He gave us life. God willed to perform a miracle, not of resuscitation, but of resurrection. Dead bones. And God says, live. And life begins. What this speaks of is salvation is granted and accomplished by God independently of anyone. Now one of the challenges that we have in reading the New Testament is that it's a hermeneutical problem. We read the New Testament through the eyes of the New Testament and especially Paul. When we think of terms like this, he brought us forth, we think of how Paul or the Gospels used it. And very seldomly does our minds go back to the Old Testament to find out what this means. Yet the apostles, they don't suck theology out of thin air. God gives divine revelation, yes, with regards to a future day and a future time to come, such as the book of Revelation and Second Thessalonians, part of First Thessalonians as well. But for the most part, theology in the New Testament is predicated and based upon theology in the Old Testament. So this is historically significant. So let me fill in that historical context, which we don't have, because James just starts off and says things that he presumes his readers know absolutely well, and they do, we don't. I pointed it out to you last week, James is alluding to the Old Testament by the mere reference of this term in verse 17, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Speaking about the immutable nature of God. And so he goes to Jeremiah chapter 31 to speak about the God who is over lights and I connected to that fact. In fact, go to Jeremiah 31. You'll see it there. I connected the reality that God as the one who creates lights and who has uh, uh, set these uh, lights in a fixed order commits himself in a covenant and says, well, you see these lights? 
Well, they are signed to you that I've committed to you in a covenant. I am not going to remove myself from you. Look at verse 35. Thus says Yahweh, who gives sun, the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. What is the, uh, the, the point that he's making here? God is in control of the evening and daylight. Sun for the light for the day and the stars and the moon for light at night. But notice what it says in verse 36. If this fixed order, if these signs that I've placed in the sky departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So I've committed to my people and as a sign to them, for perpetuity, however you want to say that, I've put in the, in the sky a sun and a moon and some stars to indicate to them that I've committed to them in my covenant. But here's the challenge. This is the new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about. How do I know that? Because it says so in verse uh, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will or shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh, for I will forgive the iniquity and I will remember this and no more. Thus says Yahweh who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. In other words, this new covenant, the same way that I, I, I put the stars in the sky and committed to you as a nation in the old covenant, I'm doing the same in the new covenant. So you will know that you are my People, if you want to hear more about that, last week I dealt with that Old Testament connection. So what we have here then is the one who is sovereign over the creation of light, the one who controls the the fixed order of the lights, is also sovereign over giving new life. The promise of the new covenant looks forward to the day where God by himself, for himself, without any prompting, And without any influence, she chooses to provide life to dead bones. How do I know that? There's a parallel passage to Jeremiah, and it is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want you to take note, with James in the background, take note of all the emphatic personal pronouns in this section. And then I want you to take note of how Ezekiel uses the words of God. Look at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Look at the emphatic nature there. I am about to act. But for the... Sorry. It is not for your sake. I read it wrong. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name. So he acts for his own good pleasure, for his own uh, um, desire and will, which... You have profaned my name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among uh, them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Who's that? Israel. 
Because it says, O house of Israel, speaking about the nation, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. That is new birth. For all your, from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You are dead. Heart of stone means you, if you've got a stone heart, you are dead. You've been dead for many years. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is God saying? I'm going to do it by myself, for myself. Isn't that what James says? Of his own will he brought us forth. But take note of this. Go to chapter 37. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit, in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. What does that mean? They are Dead. Dry bones, by implication, dead. (laughs) There's no more life. Kind of obvious, right? But notice what God says to him. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, being very wise, says, And I answered, O Lord God, you know. I don't know. (laughs) Can they live? I don't know. You know. You do know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Interesting. Prophesy literally to these bones. And say to them, again that implication of speaking to the bones, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. It's literally the breath of life to enter you. And you shall live. Wait a minute. Dead bones. What causes life? The prophecy, right? He says, prophesy to these bones. And the word prophecy there literally means speak my words. Speak my word to these bones. Because that's what it says later on. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh. You will be alive because of the word of Yahweh. And at that point in time, when you hear the word of Yahweh, God sends the life-giving spirit into your heart and changes the heart of stone into the heart of flesh, gives life to dead bones, and he gives us the picture of how these bones are reconstituted. Flesh is given up to them again, and they start to live. What do we have here? It's the picture of new life. Jeremiah is being given a vision of what God will do in a future day, how he will change dead things and give them life. How do I know this? Because this is still got to do with the new covenant. Look at verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place on you, and I will place you in your own line, in your own land, then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it, declares Yahweh. The same exact words that you find in Jeremiah 31 that speaks about the new covenant where God places his word in our hearts so that we can live. So James, now go back to James. Remember all that I've just said. Does not choose words randomly. He very specifically chooses certain words, which are called hook words in, in, in hermeneutics, to bring them in, to take note. Let's listen to what he says in verse 18 again. Of his own will, Ezekiel, I will, I will, I will, I will, over and over says that. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He gives life to something that does not have life. Isn't that what the chapter 37 says? Dead bones, can they live? I don't know, you know. And then he says, speak to them. Give them my word. Prophesy to these bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Look at the next line. By 
the word of truth. He's just summarized the prophecies of the New Testament, of the New Covenant in the Old Testament in these words. And he says, do you remember what God prophesied? There will be life, new life. There will be life by means of the word. This is that. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why does he say prophesy in Jeremiah, in in Ezekiel 37? Because the prophecy is the word. Hence, he says, hear the word. James understands this. It is only by God's word that life can come. It is only by God's word that life is given to people. It is only through God's word that dead bones can be reconstituted into life. That is what James is talking about. Believers, he's saying, this is that God has fulfilled his promise to us. I'm going to show you that he intends this to be taken in a Jewish context. Look at the last line in verse 18. Here's the purpose. The means is the word. Here's the purpose. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let me pause here. There's a challenge in, in the middle of verse 18. It says, by the word of truth. And those of you who know Greek will notice that there is no article. It does not actually say by the word of truth. In fact, it literally means by a true word or a word which is true or a word that is characterized by truth or a word that is inherently true by a word that is character, uh, that by its essence is true. He's speaking about prophecy by a prophetic word, a word that you can count on, a word that will come to pass. We are saved by a prophetic true word is what he's saying. Word of truth is a different construction. And on Wednesday, I will show uh, that to you, those of you who will come on Wednesday. What is this word of truth? What is this word that is characterized by truth? Well, Colossians 1, 5 says, the word of truth, which is the gospel. Interestingly, David in the book of Psalms, I think it's Psalm 19, where he says, uh, for the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. Isn't that interesting? Reviving the soul. Quickening the soul. The word of God is sufficient to change the heart of man. James shows the sufficiency of the prophetic word of God. Why? Because it hasn't failed. That's his point. You are starting to question if God is good. You are starting to question the very nature of God. You are starting to wonder if God hasn't placed you in temptation towards evil. And some say, I don't know if this is true, but some say that the temptation is to follow the Messiah. There are these guys who are starting to think that, hang on, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Maybe this is the temptation to follow the lie. I don't know that is true, but I can show you what he intends uh, them to believe. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. From this point on, on onwards, he speaks about the Lord who is Christ, who is Jesus. And then at the end of this book, he connects Lord with Father, saying that the same Lord is also God, who is Father, who is our Father. It seems like they had concerns about who Jesus Christ was. And I cannot say if this is what the deception is. But clearly James says, by a true word, by a faithful word, by a word that we can see being fulfilled, he saved us. By his very word, he saved us. Now, that last line. Who's in view in us and we? Who does he speak about when he says he brought us forth? Who is he speaking about when he says that we should be? I'm going to submit to you that at this stage in history, he has a very limited group of people in mind. Now I'm going to suggest that James is thinking about the Jews. Why? 
What is the date of this book? Around about 8045, right? Early 40s to early 45. Gentiles are accepted to be part of the church by 8049. This book predates the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. This is the earliest book that we know of in the New Testament, which means James's audience is predominantly what? Jewish. In fact, you can see that in chapter 2, verse uh, 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your synagogue, 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 your assembly, they are still meeting in a synagogue. That changes after 49, AD 49. Then they don't just meet in synagogues. Now they meet in homes as well. James here speaks to a predominantly Jewish audience. And I'm going to dare to say just to a Jewish audience. So when he says that he brought us forth, he's got that limited group of people in mind, the Jews. And why is that significant? Because who is the new covenant made to? In both Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37, it speaks to the house of Israel and Judah, to the people of God. Think about this. The new covenant is a promise to who first? The Jews. In fact, what did you note in, Je- in Ezekiel 36 that is included in that new covenant? You will receive what? The land. Included as part of the new covenant is the ongoing promise of the old covenant that they will receive the land. The new covenant does not eradicate some of the promise of the old covenant. It's a continuance of. So James says, listen here. This is that promise fulfilled. Let me put it in perspective. What is the context of verse 18? The accusation that God is tempting us to do evil. What is the concern? Maybe this is not from God. What is he saying? Know your God. He cannot be tempted. Know yourself. You are a sinner. Know his nature. He's unchangeable. And it is interesting that there is no subject in the beginning of verse 18. It follows up from the previous verse. The father of lights, he by his own will. She's still speaking about the father of lights, father of lights, which is an Old Testament connection to the new covenant. And James says, this father is the one that gives life. In other words, believers, if you want to know that God has not abandoned us, See the fulfillment of his promise. This is the new covenant coming to fruition. Peter says the same thing. By his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter, I think, is a little bit wider in the us there than James is. But James limits his us to the Jews. How do I know that? Absolutely. Okay. That last line, here's the purpose, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the divine purpose, that we should be a kind, not the total sum, a kind of first fruits. What is the first fruits? Well, in the Old Testament, the first fruits was the first crops that came from the ground and would be offered back to God. Imagine that. You are starving. And God says, give me my portion. The best of the crops is given back to God. And here's what James says. We are the first fruits. Now it is true that first fruits can be used in chronology like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who will be raised which means that he is the first portion of the resurrection. So if he is then the, the first offering of the, the first fruits, what does it mean for those to come? That there is a greater reaping or harvest that is to come. That's the meaning of first fruits. This is just the sampling of a big thing that is to come. So then when he says here that we are the kind of first fruits of his creatures, he's saying that we are the deposit, the first to experience the new covenant. Why first fruits? Because there's a greater harvest to come. The Jews are the first fruits, and you can see this in uh, the Old Testament where they are called the first fruits because they would receive the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. 
And we will look at that a little bit further on Tuesday, on Wednesday. The interesting word here is creatures. I'm going to end on this. He could have chosen a lot of different words. This word literally means beasts. If you look up in the, in the Alex X, the Septuagint, it's used in Genesis of the animals, the creatures who dwell on the earth. And it's generally used specifically of something that is created anew. Hmm. What James is talking about is a new, I want to say world order, a new creation model. God is creating a new people out of dead things. Does that sound familiar? Well, it does, because in the Old Testament, God creates out of what? Nothing, everything. The new covenant is God's promise to create something new out of dead things. And James says, we were the first to experience it. We are part of his new creation and we were the first to experience. We are the first, just the first to be saved. Which means that he's going to do a lot more after us. So does first fruits apply to us? Not this one. There are other first fruits, yes, that do apply to us. But not this one. This is uniquely Jewish. And James says, God is going to bring in more. This is how you know God is faithful. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of theological confusion, James responds by giving them the truth of the gospel that only God can give life. God's nature, human inability, God's immutability, unchanging nature, and His divine work is the theology that James gives as a response to their concerns. He doesn't give them practical living. He gives them sound theology to say, this is how you know that God is good. Look at his work. When I began the series, I said to you, the foundation of the believer's life is a robust theology. Let me add to that. What believers need in the face of suffering is not to understand the problem. They need to understand the truth about God. That's what Dave said this morning. We need to know God. That is what James reveals here. Even though it's so deep in theology, all he's doing is saying, know your God. When God's people hurt, when they are suffering, when they are in trials, when they lose faith and they lose heart to keep on going, what they do need is a hearty dose of sound theology. This is what James is doing to his people. This is your God. He's the one who's sovereign in your salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for such tremendous truth that you, by your own will, for your own will, save sinners. Thank you that you have called us and saved us. That we are the ongoing proof that you are still fulfilling that promise of the new covenant. You are still saving by your own will. Thank you, Lord, for being so kind. Thank you for the truthfulness of this word. We pray now that you would continue to work in our hearts, save those who need saving, and sanctify all of us that we may walk in accordance with your word for your glory. As we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.